Well, good morning again, everyone, and welcome to worship now, not only to those of you who are here in our contemporary service, but welcome now, especially to those of you who are joining us in our traditional sanctuary and online and via broadcast. Really glad that you guys are here. Really glad we're all a part of this together, all a part of one family, learning together from God's Word, even if we're not all able to be gathered in the same place at the same time. I saw a few of you as I was coming up here were kind of grinning at this little set of golf clubs that I have right down here. And uh, you may remember if you've been here in past weeks that for a few weeks I had a set of golf clubs with me that were left-handed golf clubs. And that doesn't make my golf game a lot worse than it already is, honestly. But this week I think I might have discovered the problem. These clubs aren't exactly sized for me. What do you think? You see that? I might top the ball a little bit, do you think, if I had that? These are my son's golf clubs up here. Uh, they are on loan from my brother-in-law, a very skilled golfer. And uh, he gets, I thought I should show you also the driver head cover here. Little Angry Birds, isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah, right there. Not gonna do me a lot of good. All right, let's put this back down. It's actually kind of a good metaphor having these golf clubs that don't work for me at all. As we are learning in this series called Because He Died. All of the different things that God does in our lives because Jesus died. All the many different ways that God meets us where we are, where, where we lie, if you will, and moves us to where he wants to take us next. And that takes different things. We're wanting to not have a one club understanding of the work of God through the cross of Christ in our lives, but we want to remember that it is the work of God. So having these clubs that don't work for me at all kind of helps me remember it's not me that does this in my life, but it's the power of God who works through Jesus to help move us all forward together. We've been learning how God works through the cross of Christ to move us from guilt to forgiveness, from shame to honor, from bondage to freedom, from indifference to compassion, from me to we. And today I wanna to talk to you about how God works through the cross of Jesus to move us from enemies to friends. I kind of ran into this actually in my own life just a few weeks ago in a story kind of way. I was, I was reading through my Facebook page. I know you all do that all the time. I was scrolling through my Facebook feed and I came across a post by a, a, an acquaintance of mine, a guy I know from years ago who actually works in a church in a whole other part of the country. And he had a Sunday off. He had a weekend off for a family event. He traveled to another place and went to worship on Sunday morning in a church that was part of a different denomination than the church that he works in. And unfortunately, sadly, this church that he went to worship in is part of a denomination that doesn't have the best reputation in the church that he works in, the people that he usually knows, the circles that he moves in. But he went to this church, and he went there on Sunday morning, and, uh, and the pastor preached about the, the story of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. Now, I don't know if you know much about Samaritans, but in the, if you're familiar, but in the history of Jesus' life, in first century, Jews and Samaritans didn't get along well at all. They were basically enemies. They thought very nasty things about one another. They avoided one another if they could. If a Jewish person had to walk from point A to point C and point B was in Samaritan territory, they'd take the long road around through like D, E, or F to get over here. They didn't want to see each other. They'd cross the street to not walk on the same side of the street if that's what they had to do. They were basically enemies. I think if you would take the message of a, of a Jewish person about a Samaritan person in the first century, they would have said, well, they're, they're, they're mean and nasty and they have bad theology. They, they, they believe the wrong stuff about God and the Bible. They were enemies. And so people were scandalized when they came and found Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman in public in the light of day in a gracious, grace-filled, respectful conversation. 
Now this guy who went to this church, he went and he heard the pastor there preaching on that story that morning. And then he went on his Facebook page that afternoon, which is always a bold thing for a pastor to do, by the way. He goes to his Facebook page and he, and he posts on there, he says, I think the people in this denomination might be like Samaritans to us and we should be nicer to them, all right? And then his Facebook page blew up, all right? He got a couple of likes and like one nice comment and then all kinds of nasty stuff, all right? All kinds of, no way, they're not Samaritans. That's not the people that Jesus wants us to be nice to. I've met them. They were not kind to me. Basically, for like hundreds more comments, you could summarize them as saying, but they're mean and nasty and have bad theology, right? They believe the wrong stuff about God in the Bible. And I'm reading this going, you can't make this stuff up. You know, like, it was like he had designed a social, and I think he didn't. I don't think this was intentional, but it was like a social experiment to prove his point. To prove the point that, man, we are really good at defining ourselves by what we're against, and even worse than that, by who we're against, right? We're, we're good at that. And it doesn't just happen to individual examples like that. I mean, our society is really developing an expertise in this. And we, we are a polarized, divided people. We suffer across our society with intergenerational suspicions, with interracial violence, with political polarization, we're way out from each other more and more, and we're losing the ability even to talk to each other about these things while we get better and better at shouting at each other about these things. And it happens to us not only on a wide cultural societal level, but really I think where we usually feel these things is on more the interpersonal level where our relationships really are. And sometimes we'll, in our friendships, we'll lose a friendship. It'll just blow up because of some disagreement of some kind, some insult comes up. I had a great friendship, or I thought a great friendship years ago, until my friend discovered that I disagreed with him on some issues that were really important to him. And pretty quickly, I moved from his friend list to near the top of his enemy list. And man, we had spent years, hours together. That was painful for me. Maybe you have been in situations like that. Sadly, sometimes we experience this in our own homes, maybe in our own marriages the people that we ought to be the closest to, that we want to be the closest to in life are the people that we can start to feel the furthest from. When natural disagreements, stuff that happens in the course of life gets escalated to the next level and the next level when somebody makes it personal and it becomes insulting and all of a sudden it feels like you're living with the enemy. And it really breaks my heart when it happens among Christian people among followers of Jesus, between churches, in Christian communities, when Jesus who came to move us from enemies to friends looks down and sees us acting like enemies. I mean, we have just become so much better, which is way better at dividing ourselves over our differences and making enemies than we are at working on and overcoming our divisions and making friends. It's sad. But fortunately for us, Jesus dealt with this very same thing in his life. Human nature has not changed a lot in the last 2,000 years. And right there in the closest circle of Jesus' followers, in, the, in the, 12, the first 12 disciples, there were some natural enemies in that group. And Jesus moved them from being enemies to friends. And I want to tell you a little bit about that story this morning and get a picture of how God can continue to do that in us today. But first, I got to introduce you to a couple of guys from Jesus' first disciples. The first one's name is Matthew. 
And Matthew was a tax collector. He's not actually one of Jesus' most famous disciples, except that there is a book in the Bible named for him. But we don't know a ton about him. We don't have a lot of stories about Matthew in the Gospels. But we do know that he was a tax collector. And you may not know this, but tax collectors were infamous in the first century. Very different than now where everybody loves the IRS. Totally different culture then. But people didn't just hate first century tax collectors because they didn't want to part with their money because very few people really like paying their taxes. It wasn't just that. Partly it was that they were notoriously dishonest, always gathering more than they should. But I think people could kind of even get over that. What really got people's goat about this was that the, Jew the tax collectors were usually Jewish people who were collaborating with the hated Roman overlords. I mean, if you were a faithful Jewish person in the first century, everything that was wrong with the world in your life was symbolized by these nasty Romans who had come in and ruled over you, God's people, God's land, and they needed to go. And maybe you had one level of hatred for the Romans themselves, but you had a, a higher level of hatred for your own Jewish people who should have known better, who were collaborating with them. I mean, I was trying to think, like, what are some parallels in our lifetime for that kind of relationship. And, and my mind went back to 12, 13 years almost ago, I guess now, to the days right after 9-11, after September 11, 2001, and the United States, especially in New York City and Washington DC, suffered these terrible terrorist attacks. And then we found out in the months following, maybe it was even the weeks following, I think it was the months following, that there were some born and raised American citizens who had like joined up with the Taliban in Central Asia. You remember when these stories were like all over the national newspapers and regional newspapers and the papers were filled with outrage, surprise, disdain. America was spewing hatred from its corporate mouth thinking, I understand that there are people out there who are filled with hate and want to do us harm, but that there would be compromisers, collaborators, traitors within us. It, it just raised the level of rhetoric. And that's how people in Matthew's world felt about him. I don't really know how Matthew felt about himself. We kind of don't get those stories. I imagine at one level, he's probably thinking to himself, like, look, I'm just trying to do the best thing I can. Don't hate the play. I hate the game. You know, like Rome's strong. We may as well just kind of go along to get along. That's what he's trying to do, right? But on the other hand, I'm thinking that Matthew probably had some pretty deep pain over this too. I mean, it's hard to go to bed at night in the Everybody Hates Me Club, Right? Even if you think you're doing the best you can in your work life, when you go home at night, you, you don't want to be in the nobody likes me, everybody wants to see me dead club. That's, I mean, that had to be a lot of pain in Matthew's life. And then one day in the mixture of all this mess, here comes this Jesus building a rock star following, going through Galilee, teaching the word of God. And he comes up and he starts to say the same things to Matthew. And maybe there was a whole like line of tax collector booths there at the border maybe. And Jesus starts announcing, as he had been all over the place, the kingdom of God is coming. Matthew, do you hear me? The salvation of God is coming. It's at hand and it's coming in me. Do you want in on that? If you want in on that, come to me. Learn from me. Follow me. And Matthew got up from his booth and he went with Jesus. There's this other guy, though, even less famous than Matthew. His name is Simon. Now, People in the first century didn't always have last names. And so they had to find some way to distinguish people who had first names from one another. And one of Jesus' other very famous disciples was Simon Peter. So they needed another name for this Simon. So they called him Simon the Zealot. 
Simon the Zealot. Now they called him that because he was a part of a group of people, Jewish people in the first century called Zealots. Zealot is not usually used in a very nice way, <laughs> then or now. It meant that Simon was part of this group that was zealous for the freedom of Israel. If Matthew, the tax collector, sat under the banner of the Roman king, under the banner of the order of the overlords, Simon lived under the banner of Jewish freedom. And he was ready to throw off these hated Roman pigs who were keeping us down. We know from history that not all the zealots, but many of them carried weapons with them. They had arms with them wherever they went. They'd have a small sword or a dagger under their cloak. And just in case the moment presented itself, they'd be ready for uprising at any time. And they did this from time to time. I don't know if Simon the Zealot ever did, but we know that some of them did attack Roman soldiers. They were ready for armed rebellion. They hated those nasty Roman overlords. Who do you suppose they hated more than the Romans themselves? And the traitors, right? The compromisers, the collaborators, the infidels. Matthew. And one day, Jesus is there preaching the kingdom of God, announcing what God is doing in him, and he comes up, and there's Simon, probably together with some other zealous buddies, right? Hanging out, birds of a feather. And he comes up, and Jesus says, the kingdom of God is coming. I mean, the, the salvation of God is at hand, and it's coming in me. Simon, do you want in on that? Did you want in? And if you do, come learn from me. Come follow me. And something was happening inside of Simon. I don't know what was happening in his interior psychology, but something gripped him in that moment. And he got up and he followed Jesus. And then one day, couldn't have been very long thereafter. We don't have a story about it, but it happened all the time in Jesus' life. Jesus would have sat down to eat with the men and women who were following him, shared a meal together. It was one of the central practices of Jesus' coming kingdom. They call it table fellowship. They ate together. Now just imagine Matthew was all out of pita bread and he had to ask for some more. And there's Simon halfway down the table going, I can't believe I'm giving this to you. I hope you choke on it. No, that's what he would have, so what he would have thought a couple weeks ago. And Simon over here is thirsty. He ate all of his lentils already. He's like, my cup is empty because someone passed the wine. And Matthew's going, I can't believe that I'm going to trust myself to hand this over to you. And there they were at this table, Jesus making them one like they were a family at the dinner table together. And then one day, a little while later, down the road, Jesus enters into Jerusalem one final climactic time. He comes riding in on a donkey, which fulfills what some old, old prophets had said. Look, here comes your king, humble and riding on a donkey. And Jesus, who had been announcing to Matthew and to Simon and to everybody who would listen, the kingdom of God is coming in me, puts himself here on this donkey to ride in as the king of the kingdom of God. And at least in that moment, the people of Jerusalem cheered. They were all Jesus fans. They threw first century confetti, which was like palm branches. And they took off their coats and they laid them down on the road for Jesus to ride across. And walking alongside the king was Matthew and Simon under one banner, under the banner of the kingdom of God and Jesus, its king. And in they went. And man, what a sight. I mean, the divisions between those guys, it was big. They could not have been farther apart. And Jesus brought them together and made, moved them from enemies to friends. Now, honestly, human nature being what it is, I don't imagine that the first time that somebody passed the pita bread down the table that their disagreements were all resolved. I don't imagine that their differences were all laid aside. I imagine some of those remained. And yet, 
I would have loved to have been there to hear the conversations. They sat at the table together for a couple hours. I bet Jesus taught during a lot of that time. I bet they talked for a lot of that time. And I've seen a couple times in my life how amazing it can be when people who have some pretty deep differences, who come to the world asking different questions, who see important things differently, are able yet to talk about those things in engaged and important and committed ways, and yet without being enemies of one another because those things don't define them. And Matthew and Simon had both realized that Jesus defines us, that Jesus is top level for us, that he's the first allegiance in our lives. And they had a lot more to work out, but he was the banner under which they would walk into Jerusalem. It kind of reminds me of another, I'm sorry to tell these pastor stories today, but I remember the story that I read about a pastor and in his church, he was famous for saying, this is a Jesus church. What he meant by that was that sometimes people from his congregation would come to him from time to time with good ideas and would say, we need to endorse this. We need to have our church be known for this. We need to have our identity with this as a church. And the pastor would go, this is a Jesus church. This is a Jesus church. And you may be right about that. I think I agree with you about that. But we make that our identity. And then people got to deal with that before they can ever even come to Jesus. We need them to come to Jesus first. This is a Jesus church. That's true of this community. It has been for a long time. This is a Jesus church. It may actually surprise some of you. It will not surprise others of you. There are Matthews in this church, and there are Simons in this church. Some of you have talked about those things. Some of you have not yet. We have people who are different from one another here. And honestly, spiritually, I'm pretty thankful for that. Because it means we're not of this church, or that church, or an identity church, or whatever. We're a Jesus church. This is where people come to meet him. He does amazing things in our lives. He moves us from enemies to friends. And I I think there's, in the life of Jesus, this one kind of scene behind the scenes that isn't always connected to Matthew and Simon in particular, but I think it helps us understand the dynamic that was at work, what actually happened to them to make this happen. One time, real late in Jesus' time on this earth, in that last week of his life, He's gathered together with his disciples and he was teaching them, kind of sharing last teaching, last wisdom to empower them for life on this earth after he's been crucified, raised again from the dead. And he's teaching them to love one another. It's important for us to know that that was so important to Jesus that he'd be doing it with so few days left. But, and I can imagine that Jesus knew this was gonna be an ongoing challenge. You got Simon and Matthew in your group and you got other people in your group. You gotta teach them that stuff, right? But in the middle of that teaching, Jesus says to them, it's kind of famous line. He says to them, you know, I no longer call you servants, but I have called you friends. Because a servant does not know his master's business, but I have made known to you everything the Father has made known to me. Now, sometimes I read that or I hear that and it just kind of goes over my head. It sounds so like religious or biblical or something. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like it's not earthy. I think about Jesus saying that, right? Everything the Father's made known to me, the deepest spiritual intuitions that I have, the the hardest, hottest, prayed for stuff in my soul, I've opened that up to you, and therefore I can call you friends. But I I don't know, I hope for all of us that we have people in our lives like that, but I bet not all of us do, it's hard to win and earn a friendship like that where the the deepest, most emotional, prayerful, spiritual stuff inside of us, I've made that known to you, I've shared that with you. Therefore, I have called you friends, Jesus says. I think it's no coincidence 
that right at the spot where Jesus is trying to teach them a genuinely hard lesson about how to love one another, about the character of their relationship with each other, that first Jesus began by talking about his relationship with each of them. Right? Because the walls between them were so high. And I don't know if they ever could have scaled those walls to one another. Maybe, maybe it can happen sometimes, but not often. But instead of trying to get them to come closer to one another, Jesus went closer to them and drew them closer to himself. And the closer that they each got to Jesus, they just couldn't help but get closer and closer to each other. And it was right there in that same teaching, in those same verses, that Jesus tells them what it means to love one another as friends. Jesus said to them, greater love has no one than this, than that he would lay down his life for his friends, which is precisely what he was about to do. It is because he died. It is by the cross of Christ that God moves us from enemies to friends. And, and it just may be for us here today, when we hear this remarkable set of words from Jesus himself, that maybe that is the word that God had in mind for you today in this place. I have called you friends. And we come to this word in different places. Some of us may feel that we've been living our lives, frankly, as enemies of God, at odds from God, far, far from God. And God always comes to us in Jesus, meets us where we lie, and moves us by his power in different ways for different people. And if that's you, if you feel like you've been living far from God, then I want you to hear these words from Jesus today. I have called you friend. I welcome you into my life. I welcome you into the life of God. And Jesus says, I want to call you friend. He, this, this is remarkable. It's amazing stuff. It's language we shouldn't take lightly. Jesus wants to, have a, he wants to be in relationship with us. We get real comfortable saying Jesus loves you. I think it's even possible Jesus might like you. Jesus would want to spend time with us to communicate with us. I want you to hear that. And for some of us, we've been Christians for a long time, and we know what it's like, or we strive to know what it's like to serve God. Nothing wrong with being a servant of God. We, we serve the king, the creator of the universe. But that's not the whole picture of what it means to be in relationship with God and Jesus Christ. And when being a servant is all there is, it has the opportunity to steal more life from us than it gives. It really has the power to make us joyless and to make us loveless. We'll just trudge along and dutifully serve no matter how lousy it is. Now there's some honor and duty, no doubt. But pretty soon you start looking around at other people and you wonder why they're not as miserable as you are. <laughs> and you kind of want them to be. <laughs> Maybe we need to hear that too. I have called you friend. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business, but everything the Father's made known to me, the stuff that's in my heart and in my soul, I shared that with you. That's the relationship that God wants to have with us, that Jesus wants to have with us. I've called you friend. And Jesus draws us closer and closer into him. He comes toward us so that he can bring us closer to one another. And I bet you've got relationships in your life that are like some of the relationships I've been in my life. The walls go up sometimes. And maybe it happens for you and your church family. 
Maybe in your biological family, maybe in your neighborhood or your office or your workplace. And maybe the person at that wall is up between you and them. Maybe that person is, a, is another Christian. Maybe a fellow follower of Jesus. And if so, it could be that you've got an interesting conversation to have. A hopeful conversation to have that acknowledges, hey, we're kind of divided from one another. We're on opposite sides of this thing, whatever it is. Maybe acknowledge that we're not going to resolve all those things right now. But we've got something between us that's bigger than that. We've got something that unites us more than what divides us. Doesn't mean we have to pretend those things aren't there. Doesn't mean we can't talk about those things. In fact, it might be amazing what could happen in those things when we know what unites us. And maybe the person that you're thinking of where that wall's gone up is not a Christian person, not a follower of Jesus. And no matter how much you draw closer to Jesus, maybe they're not at a place in life where they're responding to that right now. And then you've just got to ask yourself, well, so what's top line for me then? How am I going to live? How am I going to treat this person? And just to be realistic, to acknowledge that not everybody moves from enemies to friends on this side of eternity. Not all these things get resolved. Jesus on his way into Jerusalem, oh man, they cheered. They were so happy about Jesus coming in. And it didn't take very long for they were calling for his life for they were done with him. They turned themselves into enemies of Jesus. And being a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that everybody's gonna like you. Doesn't mean that everybody's gonna wanna be your friend. But then we look to see how Jesus dealt with that in Jerusalem after they all welcomed him in. And although people made themselves enemies of Jesus, how did he treat them? Never like enemies, right? He continued to preach, to teach, to invite people to himself like he had with Matthew and Simon long ago. He continued to love them and ultimately to lay down his life for them. And even in dying for them, to pray for their forgiveness to pray for their relationship with God. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, I think our world needs a church created in the image of Jesus. I think our homes need people created in the image of Jesus. And here is God moving us from enemies to friends to make of us a small example of people on the way a testimony to his power, not of what we can do, but of what he can do in us. And I think it would be well for us right now to respond to God by humbling ourselves before him and praying for his work in our lives. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your grace is incredible. You came to us right where we are in your son, Jesus. You meet us where we are and you move us forward. And God, we open our hearts before you in the places where we are broken and divided, where we need healing, sometimes for our own bodies, but also for the body that we are together. And God, we pray that you would do that in us. Help the ears of our hearts to hear that you have called us friends. Help us to experience, to, to know the miracle that is. Please reach us and wash us with your grace. And God, we pray that you would heal the cracks in our relationships, in our communities, that your will would be done, that your kingdom would come among us. We live and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.